reading this evening is from the book of Esther. You can find it on page 504 in the Pew Bibles, and it's uh, chapter 4, reading from verse 1 um, through uh, to verse 3 of chapter 5. So that's Esther, chapter 4, starting at verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city, in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the, of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go unto the, into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception for this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you, you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this rep reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? 
even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Well, good evening. My name is Blake. Let's pray before we begin. Father God, thank you for the words that we have before us. Thank you that we have them read on such a glorious day. But we pray that in this time, our hearts and our minds be focused on you. And that you would have a word for us each in season and out of season. And Father, I pray that you would help me as I speak to be faithful to your words. Amen. In uh, 2007, a journalist for the Daily Mail went in search of Britain's most ordinary man. As part of the search, he pulled together data from a range of sources and came up with a profile for what Britain's Mr. Average would look like. According to this data, they would be 40 years old, married, and have two children. They'd know the words to the first verse and the chorus of God Save the Queen. They'd own 22 pairs of socks and a copy of Queen's Greatest Hits. They'd work more than 40 hours a week, eat 35,000 biscuits in their lifetime. They'd drive a Ford Fiesta, say sorry 1.9 million times during their lives, know how to cook at least four meals, one of which was spaghetti bolognese. And most British of all, they would drink three cups of tea per day. Esther, and this book that we have before us, is a story of the average, which is not to say it is an average story because it's extraordinary, but it's a precious gem to us because it takes the things of God and it places them within the reach of Mr. and Mrs. Average, so to speak, normal people like you and I. And tonight there are three encouragements that I would like us to take from Esther's life, but first it will be helpful for us to be familiar with the full story. And the book of Esther opens with King Xerxes, the king of Persia and Media. He's hosting a dinner, a lavish banquet for the inhabitants of his capital, Susa. And on the final day of the feast, Xerxes summons his queen, Queen Vashti, to appear before him and his nobles because she was beautiful to look at. But Queen Vashti refused. And the king and all the nobles, they get together in a little huddle, and a great fluster, really, because they think that this rebellion from one woman will spread like wildfire throughout the empire, resulting in terrible disrespect and discord to husbands. So they make an example of Queen Vashti, and they banish her from the king's presence, and they strip her of her crown. The king then gets sad, he has a turn. So his nobles, they hatch a plan that all the most beautiful virgins throughout the empire would be brought to the Susa citadel, and the king should spend a night with each of them to discover who should be queen in, in place of Vashti. And for those of you who are so inclined, it is a bit like a 4th century BC version of The Bachelor. At that time, uh, a Jew named Mordecai, he's living in Susa, and he's looking after his uncle's daughter, that is Esther. And Esther's parents died when she was very young, and she's beautiful, and so she is also taken to be in the harem of the king. And very quickly, Esther, she finds favor with pretty much everyone. So she gets assigned a prime position in the harem with attendants. And it's not long before she's sent to see the king. And the king, too, he's very pleased with Esther, and he makes her queen. Meanwhile, Mordecai, who's concerned for Esther, spends time hanging around the palace's gates. And he wants to hear if there's any news of Esther, but instead he actually hears news of a plot by the gatekeepers to have the king murdered. He tells Esther this, Esther reports it to the king, the plot's uncovered, it's stopped, 
and work goes on as usual. A little while later, a man called Haman, an Agagite, he comes and he's elevated to be King Xerxes number two. It's ordered that whenever he passes the king's gate, the gatekeepers should bow and pay him honor. But Mordecai refuses to do this. And when Haman finds out, he's furious, but rather than just plotting revenge against Mordecai, he decides he'll wipe out the entire Jewish people. Now, if we think that there's a bit of an overreaction, there is one small detail to consider, which is in describing Haman as an Agagite, the author's associating him with the Amalekites, which the very first people who tried to destroy God's covenant people back in the book of Exodus. There's a long-standing enmity between these two peoples. So Haman convinces the king to issue a decree that in 12 months' time, in the entire empire, 127 provinces, the Jewish nation should be wiped out. And that's where we come to our reading tonight. Mordecai, he's in mourning, he's wailing and weeping, and Esther finds out. And she sends an attendant out to him and gets him to try and put some clothes on, but he refuses and sends her word about what Haman has decreed and asking for her to do something about it. Esther replies that it would be dangerous for her to do this. Suicide, in fact. For anyone to make a request before the king, the king has to present to them the golden scepter, otherwise the sentence is death. And then we come to the famous words of Mordecai, urging Esther to play her part, for who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther takes up the challenge, and she orders all the Jews in Susa to fast for three days before she presents herself to the king. Three days pass, and Esther goes to the court, and as we heard read, he extends to her the scepter. And he asks her, what is your request? And Esther's request at first is a little underwhelming. She says, come to a feast that I would like to host, a feast for you and for Haman. The feast happens, and Haman goes away in high spirits, but he receives Mordecai refusing to bow once again, and he's furious, and he goes home to fast track Mordecai's death, and he has set up fairly instantly a pole of 50 foot in height outside his house to impale Mordecai upon it. Now at that very same moment, the king's in bed, sleepless, and he orders the book of his reign to be brought and read to him. And he discovers in that, that Mordecai uncovered the plot to end his life. So he asks that whoever's in the king's court be brought in and that a robe and a crown should be placed on Mordecai's head. And as it so happens, Haman is in the king's court waiting to ask the king for Mordecai's life. Mordecai is uh, rewarded by the king instantly instead, and he says, put a robe on him, put a royal crown on him, put him on a horse that I've ridden, and lead him through the citadel, shouting, this is what is done for the one that the king is pleased to honor. Haman does this, and he's mortified when he returns home, only to be summoned out once again to a feast held by Esther. And again, the king asks her, what is her request? Esther replies that she would like the king to spare her life and the life of her people because they've been sold to be annihilated. Furious, the king demands by who? And when Esther unveils that it's, that it's Haman, the king storms out furious, and we know it's pretty serious because he leaves his wine behind. When he comes back, he sees Haman falling on the sofa next to Esther to beg for pardon, but it doesn't look good, and the king's rage only increases. He orders Haman be impaled upon the pole that was originally set up by him for Mordecai. But still the king's decree stands, and although Haman is gone, the Jews are under sentence. So once more, Esther must approach the king in his court 
and once more he extends to her the golden scepter. She begs the king to revoke his original decree, and he agrees, and the king gives his signet ring to Mordecai and instructs him to write a new decree, allowing the Jews on the same date as before to plunder and annihilate their enemies. This decree is written and dispatched throughout the entire kingdom, and the fortune of the Jews is very much reversed. I'd encourage you to read all 10 chapters of Esther. It's only a short read, about 15 minutes or so. It's a rich and wonderful book. But tonight we have time. Just I would like to draw out really three key encouragements and challenges from the life of Esther particularly. And the first of which is that God uses those who are ordinary. One of the things that I think can happen when we look at the lives of people in the Bible is that we kind of give ourselves a wide berth. We make apologies for how extraordinary some of the things that they seem to be doing are. Moses and the ten plagues, the pillar of cloud on fire, water from the rock, they seem unrelatable to us. You know, when Elijah calls down fire from heaven, when Paul, with the Damascus Road experience, or the powerful preaching and the multitude of signs, sometimes it seems so hard to relate to, and sometimes maybe it's fair that we give ourselves that wide berth. But what I love about the book of Esther is we aren't given that opportunity. Esther reminds me that God is always working through people, ordinary people, you and me people, to carry out the work of his kingdom. But you might say, how is Esther like us when she's queen of the Persian Empire? But actually, it is a bit unfair to say that because Esther started a few steps back, likely, of where we were. She did not start with a crown on her head. When she was very little, her parents died, so she didn't grow up with the stability and guidance and love of actual parents. She was a Jew during the exile from Israel, so she grew up when the Jews no longer had a nation or a home of their own. That was, she wasn't free. And to cap it all off, what semblance of family Esther did have was taken for her when at the womb of a king, she's brought into a harem and awaited the fate of being used for his pleasure. If you wanted excuses to turn sour towards God for your circumstances or the hand that you had been dealt, Esther had them in abundance. But it wasn't just Esther's ordinary situation. She made ordinary decisions. Well, I think at least she made decisions that I can relate to. Faced with the sackcloth and ashes of her cousin Mordecai, Esther sends him clothes and says, put these on, you're embarrassing me. I certainly wouldn't want my cousin to be embarrassing the early months of my reign as as king, uh, or not queen. When Mordecai explains about Haman's decree or destruction of the Jews, Esther's first reaction isn't also to throw herself on the ground in defense and salvation of them. She's thinking of number one straight away. She makes excuses. She says, everyone knows that if you go before the king and he doesn't extend the scepter, the punishment is death. I'm not sticking my neck out for these people. Right at the back of um, the book of Esther, we're reminded that queens aren't safe in front of Xerxes. And she knew that her life was no special, really, than anyone else's. She was afraid, and just because it was the right thing or because she had a responsibility to God's people didn't mean that her first thought was to lay herself down for them. And I like that because it means that she's like you and it means that she's like me. I would always be looking for a way out first. I would always be looking for God to send someone else. I'm just to say, the person to say, yes, Lord, but let's start tomorrow. And I think it's one of the most beautiful things when we see people whose lives give them plenty of excuse to malign the name of God 
choosing to praise him instead, when those whose first instinct is to run conquer that instinct for Jesus' sake. Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians, we are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Those very things that are the hardships to us are the very things through which God is most revealed if we choose to give ourselves to him. It seems it's just something that God loves to do, to take what is broken and make it whole, to take what's hurting and bring healing, to take our small, everyday, ordinary offerings and to make them acceptable. In 15th century Japan, a new technique of repairing broken pottery was invented after a military general was upset with the shoddiness of a repair job that he'd received. He demanded a better method for fixing broken objects, and the art of kintsugi was, was born. The idea behind it is that nothing is ever truly broken. Everything should be repaired. And when it's repaired, the repair should be beautiful in its own right. And this is done by using bits of gold to repair down the cracks of where the pottery is broken. It shouldn't be covered over in this art form. And the result is that these beautiful golden streams are just kind of woven into the repaired piece of pottery, making it more beautiful. It has more glory for the fact it was broken than it had before. And our God is patient and our God is gracious. And I praise him that his reaction, when our first reaction is not to go towards him, that door is still open to us when we do come back. The window of opportunity is still open to come in line with his plan. And when Esther does say yes to God, and when we say yes to God, he is more than willing to use ordinary all us. So that's the first thing I'd like us to notice about the life of Esther tonight, that God uses those who are ordinary. The second thing I'd like us to look at arises from a peculiarity of the book of Esther. If you read it, you'd have a sense that there's something kind of strange. Perhaps couldn't put your finger quite what it is first, and after a little while the unease might grow, and maybe you might not take as long as I did, but you'd realize eventually that God isn't explicitly mentioned in this book at all. Here we are in God's very own book, and he doesn't even get a mention, not even a footnote. But I think we can be forgiven for not noticing this sooner for a couple of reasons. One, so much of the book reads like God is just there a breath away, behind the curtain, just out of sight, but with his presence tangibly felt. I know it would be putting words into Mordecai's mouth, but I think many of us read his words in verses 13 and 14 like this. Actually, do have it in front of you so you can see where I interject our assumptions. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, God will bring relief and deliverance for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that God has brought you to your royal position for such a time as this. We instinctively feel that God's fingerprints are all over this book. One of my uh, childhood cricketing heroes was a guy called Chris Kens. I'm a New Zealander, so I support the Black Caps, which is who he played for. He was an all-rounder, a big hitter, had five wicket hauls, a ten wicket haul, centuries in both forms of the game. But in 2013, allegations came out about him being a game-changer for another reason, which is match-fixing. And it, it came out that in the IPL League, he was weighting the balance 
of a game in certain favor of certain outcomes. He wasn't necessarily playing in them, but he was influencing the events. Now, I don't know how theologically accurate comparing God to a match fixer is, nor how much of us really know much about cricket. So I'll try another approach. Uh, when I was in primary school, the touring orchestra came to visit. And they, just, they showcased all sorts of instruments, they played several pieces, and at one point during this concert, the conductor asked for a volunteer to come and help him. So one of my pairs went up, and partway through the piece, they were handed the baton to keep the piece moving. And in a few short waves of the stick, the entire piece fell apart, and the orchestra just ran amok. The conductor took the stick back and got everything back on track, and then handed it back to one of my pairs, and another few short swifts of, of the baton all to pieces once again. And without playing a note of their own, the conductor is in complete control of the direction a piece of music takes. And in the book of Esther, God is represented like this. He makes no sound, but he orchestrates everything. And the second reason we could be forgiven for thinking that he's mentioned in this book is because the way Esther and Mordecai, the way they behave is almost identical to the way that many of the Jews behave in other books of the Old Testament. The words of Jehoshaphat spring to mind. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. There was fasting and there was prayer. And Esther and Mordecai, they do exactly the same when God's people are in trouble. Now, why do I mention this rather small point about God's name not appearing at all? And what has that got to do with Esther's life? And more importantly, what has that got to do with us? Well, simply this, that God remains at work in the everyday, even when we don't see him. The way the Jews are preserved despite the absence of God in this book is a clue to us that in some impossible to define way, God uses the actions and decisions of ordinary people to move history towards his purpose and his kingdom. I cannot be certain, but I don't think that the sleepless night that, that the king had when Haman was on his way to ask for Mordecai's death and that occurring at the exact same time would have happened if the Jews hadn't have fasted. And yet the story isn't told that way. It's just told that they fasted and events unfolded. Events weighted by God in favor of his people, even when the odds were stacked against him. By not mentioning God, the author shows us through Esther that God is sovereignly in control and powerfully present, even when he seems most absent. So God uses those who are ordinary. God is at work amidst the ordinary and our third encouragement from Esther's life is that God's work is accomplished by those who are faithful to see it completed. The extraordinary thing about Esther is not that he, God had a purpose for her, not that she had come to her royal position for such a time as this, because that's true for every single one of us in this room. God has a purpose for all of us. It wasn't the fact that God had the plan that made her special. Surely what made her special was that she saw the whole plan through. For Esther, near enough wasn't good enough. I imagine how the book of Esther might have ended if I was in her position. On a bad day, I might call a fast, get everyone to pray, make grandiose promises, and then I'd let my words ring out and my actions fail because it might cost me something. I might lose my life. I would be genuinely afraid. What if God didn't show up? Then on a slightly better day, I might host a couple of feasts, I might unveil the plot by Haman to have the Jews annihilated, pull the carpet out from underneath his feet, see him done away with and think, yeah, God's acted already. This is marvelous. I'm going to put my feet up and I'm going to have a beer. But Esther doesn't leave it there. And when 
the sentence over the Jews still stands and she is called upon to risk her life once again to go into the king's presence unbidden. There she is. And he extends to her the golden scepter once again. Esther was a faithful, job done, kingdom work achieved kind of person. And as a project manager, I have to admire her ability to deliver work to a deadline. Uh, this decree of Haman's came out in the first month for the annihilation of the Jews on the 12th month. And we're told that by the third month, it had been reversed. She didn't waste time. She set about the work and seeing it through. I was told the story of a, a parishioner who came to the vicar in his study one day and said, I feel God is calling me to such and such a place. He's given me this purpose and vision. Will the church be behind it and supporting me? And the vicar said, yes, we'll, we'll support you. And off he went to the work. And a year later, he came back and he said, God's given me a call and a vision to this new work. Will the church support me? And the vicar said, yes, we're right behind you. That seems like a work of God. And then he went off and did the work. And a year later again, he came back to the vicar and he said, I've got this new call and this new vision. Will the church support me? And this time the vicar looked him in the eyes and said, what about the first two works? Are they finished? And I think the vicar's point is that we aren't to get bored or restless or even lazy with the things that God has called us to. We don't drop it, leaving it unfinished or getting sidetracked simply because something else more shiny or interesting comes along. And nor do we let it drift just because it gets hard. I would be bold to put it like this. In the church today, we have an abundance of people willing to do something new or different when what we need are those who are willing to do the faithful work, the things that remain unchanged, sharing the gospel, reading the scriptures, praying to and praising our Heavenly Father, supporting the Lord's people, serving his body, the bread and butter of being a Christian. And be encouraged that you don't need to invent anything new here. The challenge from Esther's life is very much to see the job done. I wonder how you respond to these passages from the New Testament. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. There is nothing more complicated to being a Christian than loving God, following him day in and day out, and remaining obedient to the things that he's called us to. Yet we're so often restless or looking for that next thing. The wonderful challenge of the life of Esther is to remain faithful to these things each and every ordinary day. And suddenly things become very extraordinary indeed. God uses those who are ordinary. God is at work amidst the ordinary. And God's work is accomplished by those who are faithful to see it completed. Shall we pray together? Father, thank you for the encouragement and the challenge of the book of Esther, of Esther's life. And Father, where many of us might feel rather unextraordinary, very much ordinary, would you raise our sights in hope that we are just the kind of people that you love to do business with?
that we are just the kind of people that you sent your son for, that we are just the kind of people that you love. And Lord, where our days seem stale, where we struggle to see you in our workplaces, where going about study or taking care of our family seems like a drudgery at times, would we see you at work in the midst of it? Would we know your presence and nearness? Would we have confidence that you are there with us? And Lord, would we take up the challenge to be people who see your kingdom work through, to be people who are faithful to the call that you have placed on our lives. May we never get tired of following you, of serving you, of being faithful to you, of knowing you, of being deeply engaged with your word, being a part of your body. Father, if there are any of us here who are tired, tired of just the everyday walk, would you give us new life and new energy for being faithful? We need your help, and we thank you that you've done it all for us already. Amen.